Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Are we facing another government shutdown in the U.S.? The last government shutdown was in 2013, and now it appears we may be heading for yet another one. Laura Litvin covers the issues for us. She is the Bloomberg News congressional reporter. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start with a better understanding of what exactly the deadline is that we're coming up against that could result in a government shutdown. Uh, the deadline is, uh, we believe it's 2 a.m. Saturday. And uh, at this point, both sides are getting dug in. We had both the Republicans... But what is the deadline? Is it, is it that the sort of funding is up and they have to extend it a certain amount? I mean, what that's, is the exact that's deadline? That's correct. If, if the uh, government, uh, the agencies, almost all of them, have not been funded for the remainder of the fiscal year, and if the... Uh, deadline is reached and they don't have a continuation of funding, a short-term stopgap or something if they want to continue their talks and aren't done uh, with a full bill, uh, then uh, we'd see another shutdown just like we saw in 2013. That was, of course, a very extended 16-day one. Uh, you know, it, it seems more likely than not that we would have some kind of a temporary extension. That's what both sides are saying. Uh, Laura, Laura, could you just uh, put this in a political context? Because, boy, this is, you know, what do they say? Deja vu all over again. I mean, after a while, the public gets tired of hearing about this. You're bringing out Yogi Berra for this. I like it. Well, I mean, <laughs> maybe, he could, maybe he could fix what's going on in the government. <laughs> well, there's um, a, a lessened interest in shutting the government down among some of the conservative Republicans who drove the last one. But uh, there, and there is also a, there's what's going on right now is a bit of a disconnect between the White House and Republicans in the Capitol. Republicans, the leaders in both chambers, are really trying. Have been working in recent weeks, uh, overseeing some talks that have just been between both parties on the Hill, and have not really involved the White House that much. And then the White House last Thursday started stepping in. OMB Director Mulvaney demanding funding for the border wall which uh, President Trump has requested as part of a supplemental budget request on the Hill. They would rather take those and other tough issues like Planned Parenthood funding and other things and not deal with those right now, just have a straight funding bill. Laura, I'm glad you mentioned the wall because over the weekend I was reading a variety of articles in which they, they kind of described how there are neither Republican nor Democrat leaders in any of the border states that would actually have the wall None of them want it. That's a real issue here this week. That's really kind of the backdrop, I think, is that you have a president who promised during the campaign that he would build a border wall. And you have Republicans in the Capitol all along have been for a, an approach that's their longstanding position, which is they want to see more money for border security, but they want something that's more flexible, that might involve fencing, drones, more border patrol agents, things like that, and maybe some concrete and reinforced area, but not that's not really their primary goal here. And so there's that. And then there's also the question of whether people feel it should be that immediate. And you see members of the Freedom Caucus, members from Texas, who don't seem to be showing very much of an appetite to address any of this at this time when they are going to be turning around and talking about next fiscal year's budget almost immediately and want to address it then. 
Well, but Laura, I mean, isn't this just always an exercise in kicking the can down the road? I mean, are we really expecting something comprehensive? Why can't they just sort of renew things as they are before, you know, proposing something more comprehensive and getting it through? I mean, why isn't that not just sort of the obvious go-to thing? Well, I think what happens sometimes is that you can see where it's probably going to go, and then it takes them a bit of wrestling to get there. And I think we're maybe one or two weeks away from doing something just like what you described, which is something fairly close to current levels of funding, a short-term extension followed by something that will have some rejuggled priorities, but nothing particularly drastic, because this has to be bipartisan. You not only right. need eight votes in the Senate to get 60 votes to overcome a filibuster, because Republicans have just 52 votes, but in the House you can almost bank on the Conservative Freedom Caucus Republicans not wanting to vote for any bill like this, regardless of right. border funding, any of that. So you need some Democratic support, and that's what they're wrestling with. Right. And, and you also need something to keep the markets awake because people can now start worrying about a government shutdown. Can you just put into perspective what a government shutdown actually would look like and what the potential consequences would be on a broader scale? Well, you would have um, almost all of the agencies have not had their funding approved. So you have everything shut down from, you know, the National Park Service to, um, you know, various agency work, um, you know, it's, it's Meaning that nobody would go to work and no one would get paid. There's some uh, provisions for dealing with people who have really important emergency-related type jobs that do work. And they, in the last time this happened, I remember them doing some like back pay for people and working out some things. But if you remember, it was you know things were pretty much shut down in 2013. Do uh, do members of Congress and their staffs do they continue to get paid? Um, but I've got to remember from the last one. Well, uh, no worries. I mean, yeah, it, but I, go I, ahead. I, I do remember that some of them were even shutting down. Uh, a lot of their staffers were, I, I think they weren't, because, or at least their staffers weren't. Because some people, there were a lot of complaints from constituents that people weren't even answering the phones when they were calling their congressmen to complain about it. Yeah. You know, it's it's striking to me that the deadline that is coming up is going to also coincide with President Trump's 100th day in office. And the symbolism of that uh, cannot have evaded him. How invested is he in making sure that we do not get the worst case outcome in this case? That's the that's the million dollar question right now. And no one can tell just how willing he is going to be to push this all the way over the brink. On the one hand, if, if they forestall a shutdown and do it, even if it's just doing a stopgap, something pushing this off for a week, he can say he did something that President Obama didn't. You know, President Obama had a shutdown. He can say, I was able to keep the government going. But at the same time, his supporters feel very strongly. The people who voted for President Trump feel so strongly about a border wall. Border wall immigration issues are one of their top issues. And he's already planned a rally in Pennsylvania this coming Saturday night, instead of going to the White House Correspondents Association, he's taking off and going to uh, dinner. He's going to Pennsylvania. He's holding a rally, and it has a lot of people wondering, is he planning on pulling out all the stops on the wall and then holding a rally? No one, no one knows. And so that's the big wild card in all of this. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens, and I know you're going to keep us up to date on it. I didn't know maybe Pennsylvania. I don't think they're getting the wall, though. But that's okay. Well, Laura, I, well, I, I don't know. Maybe Pennsylvania, New I, York, New I, Jersey. I, that I don't know. Anyway, I want to pre- appreciate it. Thanks very much. Uh, Laura Litvin is our Bloomberg News congressional reporter joining us uh, from, I believe she's in the Senate Press Gallery uh, today. So thanks Wait. very much for being with us. Uh, we're broadcasting from the uh, 
2017, the Future of Energy Summit. It's all powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We are here broadcasting live from the 2017 New York Future of Energy Summit, which is powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And I'm honored to uh, bring in Carl Pope. He's principal advisor for Inside Straight Strategies. Uh, he also is the former head of the Sierra Club, and he's out with a new book, which is called Climate of Hope, How Cities, Businesses, and Citizens Can Save the Planet, which is co-authored by Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City and the uh, founder of Bloomberg LP. Carl, we're so happy to have you join us today. I wanted just to start before we get into what we can be doing to mitigate uh, man-made climate change. Has your hope receded since the latest U.S. election and given some of the uh, rhetoric that has come out of the current presidential administration? Well, I think we obviously have a new barrier to overcome in the attitude of the new administration in Washington. On the other hand, if I look at what's been happening in the rest of the world, my hope is greater than it was before Election Day. The fact is, we have a very, very powerful tailwind pushing us towards climate solutions in the form of city leadership, in the form of technological innovation, in the form of having a company as mainstream as Budweiser Beer decide that they really need to go 100% clean energy. That's not the kind of announcement I would have expected even a year ago. So I'm actually more hopeful, although I'm really not so hopeful when I go to Washington, D.C., so I try to avoid it. Well, uh, Mr. Mr. Pope, uh, okay, we won't make you go there, but, uh, you know, obviously the one of the themes in your book has to do with cities. So I'm wondering what should cities and municipalities be doing, not only in terms of, uh, let's say, the clean energy uh, agenda, But there is all the revenue that currently flows from the energy generation business, maybe call it a legacy business, all that revenue still flows to the municipalities. What happens if that revenue starts to dry up because people put solar panels on their roof or they are no longer going to be driving as much? So that means that the taxes paid for improving highways decreases. What what are some of the challenges? One of the things that is actually happening is that more and more American cities are moving from legacy fossil fuels to innovative wind and solar. The reason they're moving, for the most part, frankly, is not the climate. The reason they're moving is it saves their customers money. And if a city can give its businesses and its residents cheaper electricity, that is very good for economic development. Let me tell you, mayors love that. Similarly, we just saw an announcement by 20 cities that they are putting out a joint tender, a a bid, trying to buy 100,000 electric vehicles because they understand if they buy their electric vehicles together, they'll be able to get a better price. Volume drives down cost. And second, when they go electric, all of a sudden they don't need to spend as much money buying diesel or gasoline. And diesel and gasoline do not come from inside cities. Those, that's money that has to be sent somewhere else. So cities are realizing that a clean energy future is an energy future in which more of the dollars that are generated in that city stay to the benefit of that city. That's one of the major things driving mayors forward. Uh, just to follow up there, uh, having to do with cities, do you believe that things like congestion charges and offering free parking for all electric vehicles is something that all cities should embrace? 
Well, all cities shouldn't embrace probably any one solution because every city is different. My partnership with Mike Bloomberg actually began uh, as an effort to implement congestion pricing as a way of financing mass transit in lower Manhattan. Uh, we didn't get there. So there is resistance to ideas like congestion pricing, even in a city as sophisticated as New York, although really the problem was in New York. The problem was state government in Albany that wouldn't give Mayor Bloomberg permission to do that. And even today, New York's transit system still needs the money that would have been raised by congestion pricing. I think the key thing to understand, though, is every city has its own unique set of problems and its own unique set of opportunities. And you need to look at the problems, look at the opportunities, pair them up, and move forward. One of the things that's frankly depressing about Washington is Washington is looking to the rearview mirror. Washington is trying to make America great by holding on to yesterday's technologies. Cities don't have that luxury. Cities are not competing to be the home of the next buggy whip manufacturer. Cities are competing to be the home <laughs> of the next electric car dealership. Right. Well, Carl, is there anything that's currently going on in any particular city that you can point to as something that is an optimistic development that you think should serve as a model? Sure. I'm going to point to Salt Lake City, and I'm going to point to Salt Lake City because it is, after all, the largest city in the most Republican state in the nation, so you can't say it's Berkeley or even New York City. Salt Lake City has announced that it is going to source 100% of its electricity from renewables, and Salt Lake City has the fastest growing mass transit capacity of any large city in North America. And Salt Lake City is doing that because the people, the residents, care about the quality of their life. They want to have a dynamic economy. They used to be dependent on mining and extraction industries. Now they're dependent on knowledge and invention industries. That's the wave of the future. And it's not just Salt Lake City. The first, the first city in the United States to go 100% renewable was Georgetown, Texas. And the mayor of Georgetown had to explain, folks, I'm not doing this because I'm green. I mean, Al Gore didn't come and take over our city. I'm doing this because it saves money. Cleaner is think. cheaper. And what's not the like? All right. Thanks very much. Carl Pope is a principal advisor inside Straight Strategies. He is also the former executive director and chairman of the Sierra Club. And he is the co-author of a new book entitled Climate of Hope, How Cities, Businesses, and Citizens Can Save the Planet. That is co-authored also by former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens.
We are broadcasting from the 2017 The Future of Energy Summit. It's all powered by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And here to tell us more about energy is Aka Lunt, the president and the chief executive of Statnet, and he joins us here at the conference. Great to have you with us. Thanks for coming in. Um, you know, I wonder if you could just give people a little bit of your background because they may not know about Statnet, and Norwegian company, and the role that it plays, not just in Norway, but throughout uh, the world when it comes to energy uh, transmission. Thank you very much. Startnet is the national grid company of Norway. Uh, we are basically running the central grid for the whole of the country. Uh, we have only renewable production in Norway, so we were very happy to do that. Uh, and that uh, hydro uh, power which we have uh, enables us to move both uh, production from one time to the other and uh, do that by interconnecting our system to our neighboring countries. So, you know, one thing that people talk about uh, with renewables, one big problem is you can't really store it the same way you can take oil and put it on a tanker and float it out in the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, how have you solved this problem? Because you're, you're sort of touching on it, but be yep. explicit, please, please, about how exactly this sort of uh, connects those ideas, uh, the idea of storing renewables versus transmitting them. Yep. So hydro is a, is a great source. You can open the valve if you want it and you need it and you can stop it if you don't need it. So we, through hydro reservoirs, we can collect uh, water during rainy periods and let the water run during dry periods. So that's basically a way of storing. And that's how we solve our own demand because sometimes it doesn't rain also in Norway. <laughs> Uh, so we need that for our own system. But uh, we also have interconnected our grid to the Danish, the Dutch and the German, and going to, do it to the German and the UK grid. Through those interconnections, you can move this storage capacity we have also down to those countries. If you look at Denmark, they've been able to install uh, a huge amount of wind power and are running from time to time, like 60 or 70% of their demand is covered by wind. And the, the remaining parts would then actually come uh, through the interconnectors from Norway. Just to be very clear about what this is, it, it sort of flips the idea of storage on its head. It's not that you're actually storing it, it's that the electrical current is going somewhere at all times, but it's going to where it ne it's needed. Exactly. And so it's not necessarily storing in the way that a lot of people think of storage, which is you put it in a box and you hold it till later? Well, yes and no. Uh, you can imagine that the, through these interconnectors in Denmark, sometimes uh, the wind is so strong that they produce more wind than they need. And then they basically send that power to Norway. And what we do is that we then stop our turbines to produce, and it means we store the water in our reservoirs uh, and, and leave it for the next day. And even in sometimes, uh, if prices are really low because of the oversupply wind, we would re-pump, we would pump water from a lower level to a higher level and could then, the day after, reverse it and thereby get electricity back. So basically you do actually store in uh, reservoirs. But a very important part here is that you have a market which really works because the market gives you the signal when should I keep the water in the reservoir, when should I let it go, when is electricity from wind very cheap and I could get that in my system and, and store it for the next day. I wonder if you could just speak to the issue of being a state-owned company because yep. uh, obviously utilities are owned in many different forms all over yep. the world. How does being state-owned help you? 
I think it's uh, almost uh, in in a country like the US, you shouldn't say that, but it's almost a prerequisite prerequisite for our the way we have functioned uh, uh, or, or uh, created our markets. We have installed a completely independent system operator owning the transmission system, which is Startnet, and it is state-owned. So we have a, a very strong mandate to take care of security supply in Norway at any point in time and run the system at what they call a socio-economic, uh, with a socio-economic view on how we do things. And that distinguishes a little bit from the other companies who could have specific... Uh, oh, they maybe have shareholders, shareholders that they have the answer to exactly, indeed. Exactly. So, so we, we have, a, I, I would argue, a, a much broader view than the individual companies which produce and, and, and connect. So do you think that the model that you're talking about, the markets that you follow, could be replicated in a uh, non-state-owned company or do you think that it's very specific to the model that you currently have in Norway? No, I think you can do it. Of course, you, uh, it, it's not uh, the only way to organize a market. Uh, we have also one of our neighboring countries. We have a, a, a similar company like Startnet, which is partly owned by uh, pension funds and it, it functions, although a bit different than we do. I just want to get your thoughts though on something that you own, I think, about a third of Nordpool, right? Yep. Nordpool. Just to give you 30 seconds, what is Nordpool? Explain to people how that's interesting. Well, as I mentioned for the, just a minute ago, that the markets are extremely important in this type of system. You need the right pricing signals. Nordpool is the power exchange where uh, all producers have to uh, nominate what they're going to uh, de deliver, and the market will tell what they want to ask, and the market will clear and give prices. And th those prices give the right signals whether we should store water or we, sh we should uh, leave the water down. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly a fascinating discussion. Ake Lant is president and chief executive of Statnet, which is Norway's uh, power and electric grid. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.